the path to entrepreneurship is there's really no defined path, if you will. You just need to continue to one, hold yourself accountable. Uh, and two, you need to be willing to pursue opportunities as they present themselves. Thanks for joining us today as we take a look into the diverse journeys, struggles, and successes of business professionals as they give their perspectives on the impact of a business education, what they learned along the way, and where they will go. I'm Justin Zane, and this is Business and Rap. Welcome to the show. Hosting with me today are Yai and Chris, and joining us today is our special guest, Ian Lieberman. After graduating from the University of Florida with a bachelor's in finance, Ian decided to pursue an MBA in consulting and entrepreneurship at the University of Texas Macomb School of Business. Ian is currently a Tampa, Florida-based entrepreneur, owning and operating a chain of Fuzzy's taco shops while investing in commercial real estate nearby with his brother, Adam. In light of the COVID-19 pandemic, the brothers founded a personal protective and sanitization equipment import company, selling hard-to-locate safety items to a wide variety of businesses. Ian is also an outspoken mental health advocate and founding board member of the Love for Lawrence Foundation. Thanks for joining us today, Ian. Hey, thanks, guys. So could you tell us a little bit about your journey since your graduation from the University of Florida and why you decided to go back and pursue an MBA at UT? Yeah, sure. So out uh, of the University of Florida, I, like a lot of undergrads, uh, chose my major based on really what was the most prestigious major that I could actually see myself uh, pursuing and, and potentially enjoying. Um, so I chose finance, uh, even though I really, uh, you know, at this stage of my career, know that finance is not my necessarily my passion. But I chose finance, pursued it, took the, took the undergraduate coursework and ultimately got internships in the financial services field. Um, and then pursued a career in banking right out of school. So commercial and private banking, working with small business owners, very similar to the type of company that my brother uh, and I run now, working with business owners just like myself, uh, ranging kind of all the way up to more middle market style companies. And I learned pretty quickly that I really enjoyed being part of the process of learning about companies, uh, but I didn't necessarily love being the service provider. I wanted to be in the action. And I was, I felt a little bit, I think stagnant in my role within the banks, uh, even though I'd, I had been promoted fairly quickly and was doing well. So I chose to pursue an MBA to really expand my horizons. And ultimately I chose University of Texas. I had considered going to UT undergrad. I've always been a UT fan, pretty easy school and, and town to root for. So uh, ended up at UT, chose between some other great schools. And uh, it's been an interesting, uh, you know, zigzag of a process. There's definitely in entrepreneurship, there's no straight line. Uh, and UT, I thought, was a great fit for my entrepreneurial ambitions. And it uh, turns out uh, it was a really nice, uh, at least, foundation from a, an outset standpoint and definitely set me down the path. Awesome. So how did the MBA compare to your expectations about what you would gain from it, especially since you come from a finance background? And what would you say was your biggest takeaway? Business school can really be whatever you want it to be. Uh, it, it truly. And, you know, a lot of folks come in with very specific uh, ambitions for what they want to get out of their MBA. And, you know, I was a little envious of those people because, you know, anyone who, who thinks they have it figured out, you know, just hasn't realized that they don't yet. But for me, I knew that I was going to be a career changer. Um, I knew that ultimately I wanted to be an entrepreneur or work for my work for myself. Um, and then when I got to the University of Texas, you know, there's a certain amount of 
And there's, and it can be productive. There's a certain amount of group think. When I got to the University of Texas, I really didn't know much about consulting. Um, and as I learned about the, you know, the discipline, it really seemed interesting to me because very much like my initial career in banking, you get to learn about a lot of different companies and you get exposed to very smart people uh, and people operating at a very high level. And that was all appealing to me. And while yes, I, I might not have been being true to myself, my, or at least my long, my really kind of long-term ambitions as I pursued consulting as a focus in my MBA studies, I ultimately learned a lot of great skills. Um, and while I, I did an internship in strategy out in San Francisco, and then ultimately got an, got an offer to go to one of the big consulting practices and subsequently walked away from that offer to go try my hand at entrepreneurship, which is a whole different story. So what did the MBA from Texas mean to you? I definitely, the, the University of Texas MBA program for me meant widening my skill set at the same time, providing depth in certain areas that I wanted to explore and definitely just a greater worldview. It's the, the types of people you meet are fantastic. The coursework is for sure competitive with any top MBA program in the country. And it even today, as I evaluate different business, I'd say challenges that I'm facing, I always am reminded from my MBA to take a step back, kind of evaluate the landscape and question why I'm making the assumptions that I'm making uh, as I'm evaluating an opportunity or a challenge. How did you go about deciding you wanted to be an entrepreneur? And why did you decide on Fuzzy Taco Shop? <laughs> <laughs> so as a, uh, as a bar owner, uh, among other things, I usually tell people that story is reserved for having, uh, having cold drinks in hand at some chips and queso on the, uh, on the table. But, uh, you know, this will have to do. So at a business school, I ended up going uh, out to San Francisco and working um, at, on some software projects with a, a handful of friends that were successful entrepreneurs out there, um, worked as a contractor for a larger company, and really kind of started to just cut my teeth a little bit in terms of what it meant to you know be self-motivated and be working for myself and really be pursuing opportunities. And one of the biggest lessons you learn quickly in entrepreneurship is you know you sometimes need to pursue opportunities that aren't going to pan out. And I learned very quickly out in San Francisco, what that tasted, tasted like. And it's, you know, it's a, it's a real humbling experience, particularly for I mean, students like yourselves that are obviously high achieving and are used to achievement. And I mean, you likely have a culture of achievement in your, both in your life and, and potentially at, in and outside of your academic lives. But what it meant for me was to pursue an opportunity that ultimately was kind of felt, I felt like it was going in the wrong direction, but at the same time, given my MBA and my desire to kind of continue to expand my horizons. I was advising a company in New York and that company was a fitness company um, with a handful of a handful of studios at the time in New York City. I was very good friends with the founders and I was advising them on just some capital structures and different ways to structure their business. And they uh, ultimately wanted to bring me on uh, and essentially as a chief development officer or CFO type role. What does a CFO role look like at a small company? Um, within a small company, you really wear a lot of hats. We did everything from building fitness equipment and cleaning studios to, you know, building out financial models for potential private equity investors. And ultimately, what I found there is that the family that I was working with, they ch they chose to franchise their company. And while it's not necessarily the direction that I would have chosen for the endeavor, I think that it was probably more prudent at the time to raise private equity or at least friends and family type of capital to expand the unit count. And how did that turn out? We ended up building out a franchisor and it taught me an immense amount as I led that process 
building out the, the franchise documents for that company taught me the, the power in multiple unit economics, um, which is really how I landed on Fuzzies. Because as I, at the end of kind of that process of creating the franchisor, um, and as we amicably just decided to part ways after just a year in New York, I knew at that time, particularly given the fundamentals of, for growth in Tampa and this in this region in Central Florida, I knew that I wanted to be a part of the growth of this region for the next 20 years. And uh, that's when I decided to start a company and I wasn't sure what that was going to be. I vetted over a hundred concepts and ended up landing on Fuzzies because I thought it had the right fundamentals for me. Was anybody able to help you or guide you through this process? Fortunately, uh, through conversations with my brother at the time when he was living in, in Colorado, he went out and actually visited a couple of Fuzzies units throughout the state of Colorado, called me back and said, you know what, this is a, a fantastic concept and it really suits what we, uh, what we were talking about. Uh, he said, Ian, I think you should absolutely do this. This is, this is very different than what we've got in Tampa, but at the same time, I want to do it with you. You're not going to go down this road alone. So he and I and his wife opened the first Fuzzies in, in Brandon, Florida, gosh, almost five years ago to the day. We started our company about six and a half years ago. It definitely takes some time to build the infrastructure for a multi-unit restaurant company. And now we're, uh, you know, we're in a couple different businesses. So, Wow, congratulations. You and Fuzzy's Tacos have definitely come a long way. Um, how would you summarize your path to entrepreneurship, if you will? The path to entrepreneurship is there's really no defined path, if you will. You just need to continue to, one, hold yourself accountable. Uh, and two, you need to be willing to pursue opportunities as they present themselves. Um, and you need to be open-minded to those opportunities, um, not necessarily dead set on a path, if you will, because sometimes the best opportunities come from a place that you're not expecting. Yeah, that's definitely some great advice. Uh, can you go into a little more detail on the other options you were considering and maybe some of the specific fundamentals that drew you guys to Fuzzies? Sure. Uh, we entertained I'd say any number of, you know, healthier or better for you type options. So this was at the time, the time I was vetting concepts in New York City, I was living in the financial district and the financial district is one of the highest per capita lunchtime spends in the world. When you think about the density of office market down there and a lot of the top fast casual concepts in the world ended up with a, one of their initial units in the, in, a, in the financial district in New York City. So I was very fortunate that I was surrounded by great concepts like, I mean, Roti Mediterranean Kitchen. Obviously, the big boys like Chipotle had a huge, a huge volume unit down there. There's, uh, there. There were a number of phenomenal fast casuals in particular that were down there and all different styles of cuisine. So really how I started at the outset was just using my notes on my iPhone and I would walk around the neighborhood and I'd walk into the, the restaurants at off-peak times. And I'd ask to speak to managers or owners or whoever was on site and just ask them how it was going. Oh, wow. And how did they receive that? Were they willing to talk to you? People are very, in the hospitality industry in particular, they're very forthcoming with information if you just humbly kind of ask. A lot of times people love to talk about their business. And that's another great lesson for young students. Um, and y'all obviously are not afraid to do it as you just approached me. But never be afraid to ask someone for information. As long as it's not anything proprietary or too personal, a lot of times people are willing to share. Did that, ended up spending a lot of time in Midtown. Uh, the original Shake Shack was directly across the street from one of our fitness studios. So that was that was pretty cool to have spent a lot of time and really observed the operations there. And ultimately landed on Fuzzies for a couple of reasons. One, it was growing very quickly um, and really out of the last recession. It had great fundamentals. Two, I'm a complete sucker for Tex-Mex. Chips and salsa are like a food group to me. Nachos are very, very serious. Um, in my household. So we really, uh, as a family, we grew up having Taco Tuesdays. 
I mean, it was very much part of our, I think, family culture. And as we it became clear that I was going to do this venture with my brother, Fuzzy's really resonated with us. You know, it's nothing fancy. It's boldly flavored. And it's just a chilled out place to hang out with, with friends or family or just or coworkers or whatever. It's, you know, it's not, I don't think it's necessarily the highest end of Tex-Mex, but that's not what we were looking for. We were looking for something that suited the middle market and really was suitable for a lot of different dining occasions. So that's what we got with Fuzzies. And uh, it's been a, it's been a successful ride so far. That's awesome. Actually, before you came on, I was talking to Chris and Yahi about how hungry I was just doing research on fuzzies <laughs> and prepping for this call. Yeah. So I know that you mentioned you are partnered with your brother. And so what what's it like working with a family member together? What's the dynamic? Is it is it nicer? Would you prefer something different? Would you do it again? I think that, yes, I would absolutely do it again. Um, and the key is there's a lot of keys, actually. One um, I would tell you is uh, if you're going to work with family, it's be- it's a beautiful thing because there's built-in trust there as long as your family relationship is close and, and true. You're never going to trust anyone like you can trust a brother or a father or mother, at least in my opinion, that's that's been my experience. Yeah, for sure. What were some of the challenges involved? My brother was working with his wife in the business at the outset as well. And, you know, sometimes that can be two against one or you have to deal with the dynamic of the husband and wife. Um, and it's all tricky, but what we found what the key was open and honest communication. You need to just put all of your reservations about potentially not offending your brother uh, or potentially, you know, speaking out against, you know, a family member who you normally would, you know, give the benefit of the doubt. And in business, the more you can communicate and the more that you can, I mean, kind of bear harsh realities together, the better and stronger you'll be. And what my brother and I have always said is, you know, we may not disagree, we may not agree on everything. And we certainly may not always think that the other person is doing the right thing, but we know that he works for the benefit of my family. I work for the benefit of his family and we will always be stronger together. So as long as we maintain that focus, then we, like I just said, we'll be stronger together. And what was your biggest lesson from partnership and learning how to work together? And, you know, one of my very close friends and investors in our, in our first fund that ultimately funded the development of our, our fuzzies units, he taught me a lesson that his boss taught him. Uh, he works in private equity and he said, you know, as a private equity investor, I'm always reminded of the king and the pawn. Your partner is your king. You are the pawn. That means if you are focused on protecting your partner and you're focused on working and doing the dirty work for your partner's benefit, you will always benefit. So the king in the pond is something that's always a, uh, a thought for me as uh, I'm trying to make decisions for the benefit of our partnership. Thank you so much. So how are you able to pool funding for both fuzzies and future expansions? So combination of debt and equity is, tip- is a traditional method for funding, uh, you know, bricks and mortar retail development like a restaurant. So um, I did a lot of research on uh, capital structures and ultimately landed on a structure that we felt was right for us and the types of investors that we thought we would be able to attract. And we did, you know, the traditional kind of friends and family uh, type and in, type investment. Could you tell us a little more? How does friends and family investment work? We ended up having a couple family members invest uh, at the outset. We also had a couple of close friends that were just business professionals in the community that knew 
mine and my brother's skills and also knew that we had found a great brand that we were going to be bringing to market and they felt confident that we had a good plan to do so. So it was really a small fund that we raised and it's been, uh, you know, that's been a challenge. How does knowing that your investors are your closest friends and family present unique challenges? Because when you're, when you're similar to working with, with family, um, when you're raising money from friends and family, there's a whole new layer of uh, responsibility that, that comes there. Um, so we really, we tried to report to our investors just as if they were institutional, right? So we have the very professional and detailed investor reports that come out uh, with frequency. We uh, make sure that their checks, their investor checks are as frequent as they possibly can be. Um, and typically, you know, revenue in both in the restaurant industry and in the uh, investment world, revenue cures all, right? So uh, as long as our investors feel like their capital is being returned upon and that it's safe and that we are good stewards of their capital, um, we've found that it has been uh, very rewarding but also very challenging to, to raise money. We didn't raise a ton of money, but we raised a, a nice seven-figure sum. And that was enough on top of the debt that we were able to place to, uh, to build out some restaurants. And uh, we, uh, we, we didn't feel the pressure of having to go to market consistently to raise money. We had the same investors in all of our stores so far. Got it. And I'm sure all of us hope that one day we can call a seven-figure sum a small sum of money. But kind of branching out a little bit from uh, the restaurant uh, and into another one of your entrepreneurial endeavors, I understand that last March, you decided to start a company from your restaurant to connect businesses to PPE and sanitization solutions in light of the pandemic called FTB Services. How did you start it and how has it grown and what do you see as the future? Do you think it's you know here to stay or just for times of the pandemic that we're in right now? So. In March, when dining rooms were being closed, my brother and I felt a tremendous amount of pressure. We are responsible for a lot of people's livelihoods. We've got close to 200 employees, and we knew that if we were to shut our restaurants down, we couldn't afford to pay our employees for very long. You know, restaurants aren't the types of businesses that sit with hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars in the bank. I mean, we are operating companies, and as such, we needed to make serious cost cuts. So. When we decided to furlough some of our staff, we immediately fought tooth and nail to bring back as many people as we could. And we did very quickly. And that's a whole nother story about the, all of the different things that we did during the pandemic uh, to ensure our success, both short-term and long-term. But I tell you that because my brother and I didn't know what it meant for us personally. You know, we have our entire lives are sunk into our businesses and in March, we thought it could be the end of some of our businesses and potentially the end of us personally, financially. We didn't, we really didn't know what the government was going to do, but all, but some things that we did know were that in the restaurant business, we are customer facing and we have never ordered some of these products before, like sanitization wipes and masks and screens to, you know, block your cashiers from customers and whatnot. But my brother and I are scrappy and we did a lot of research and we had some friends that were actually already in the industry that were distributing PPE to medical companies. And we spoke to them and ended up ordering um, a first, we invested uh, in our first set of 10,000 masks that were branded for fuzzies. And uh, we became the distributor to the entire chain nationwide. So there were about 150 units at the time. Um, and not everybody ordered the masks, but a number of franchisees did. And we were able to recoup our investment, which for us, it was a big deal because at the time, you know, we thought we were facing potential financial ruin. So to have to invest in, you know, these 
PPE products was very much uh, foreign to us at the time. How were you able to see this adding value to others and those in your community? But one thing led to another and we saw the, the, the power in being able to sell these products and provide the value for you know, our, the other franchisees as customers. And through our restaurants, we had very deep relationships with organizations like the University of South Florida, the University of Tampa, um, and some other folks in the business community. And we just reached out to folks and really started marketing our services as being able to locate hard to find items. Um, and we started networking with folks in the PPE space, folks that had sourcing overseas. And we signed a handful of very large clients. I mean, among others, we did a couple hundred thousand masks for Raymond James Stadium where the Super Bowl was last night. We've been working with the athletic department from a couple large universities. And really that industry, it's, it's a bit of a rabbit hole. And once you go down it, you start realizing that everyone really needs these products. So we had the very good fortune of uh, securing a Fortune 100 client uh, that, and actually creating a product with our own brand on it. Uh, so FTV Services has brand has branded alcohol wipes that we're distributing through a very large Fortune 100 client, and that has been uh, a real nice foundation for our company. And uh, we, as we continue to, uh, you know, to execute orders for that client, uh, it's really nice to be able to use them as a reference. And um, I do think that this company is is certainly here to stay, if not forever, certainly for a while. Thanks for that overview. What would you say would be some of the things that you learned from this experience? We learned a lot about. Uh, overseas manufacturing, importing logistics, negotiating contracts uh, and purchase agreements. And that's a real skill. Uh, in addition to a lot of the uh, the finance that you don't learn in university, that is, that kind of is around international trade. So everything from letters of credit to uh, various forms of private equity finance uh, in the industry. It's been, uh, it's been fascinating for me as I've kind of led that endeavor. So I do think that we will continue to focus on that in addition to our restaurant company and, and real estate investments as well. As a founding board member of Love for Lawrence Foundation, it is clear that mental health is something that really matters to you. So can you tell us more about this cause and why it's significant to you? So Love for Lawrence is uh, the name of the foundation. And it's the letter, it's the uh, the Roman numerals four IV in honor of my best friend and uh, you know partner in crime and very much a brother. He who his name was Lawrence Dimmitt the fourth, and Lawrence died by suicide. I think gosh, a little over three years ago. He was an original investor in our company. He was a confidant, a beautiful soul, and uh, you know Lawrence struggled for a lot of his life and. Even his best friends and family didn't necessarily know the extent of the struggle. So I'd like to say that my eyes were opened permanently to the importance of maintaining one's own mental health, as well as a focus on mental health in your communities, whether that be your student, your community of students, your community within a religious organization, within your family. These are all communities where people at times can struggle. And really once your eyes are open to this issue, I think you all probably, this probably will resonate with you. Once your eyes are, are open to this issue, you start to see that one, you're not alone. And two, everyone around you is dealing with something. And to the extent that you can be a resource, if, not, if nothing else, just to give someone a call that you know might be struggling and say, hey, I'm here. Uh, if you ever want to talk, you'd be surprised. At least what I've found is I've been surprised at how forthcoming people are with, uh, with their potential uh, their, their potential issues or just things that are on their mind. So 
it's, it's, it's a subject matter that I'm incredibly passionate about. And really my goal in pursuing the Love for Lawrence Foundation was to, at least at the outset, try to make sense of Lawrence's death by helping to make sure that other groups of friends and families like Lawrence's didn't deal with the same terrible, terrible loss that we did. And, you know, we've ended up creating this wonderful board full of advisors and some of Lawrence's closest friends and family members. And after about three years of operations, we've hosted a handful of signature events. We've raised over, we've absolutely raised over seven figures. Our endowment is a long-term endowment and we will be gifting to worthy causes for many years to come. Um, I've committed this to be a major focus in my life for as, as long as I can possibly focus on the subject matter. And the foundation itself is growing and thriving. And uh, we've really been focusing a lot on mental health first aid, uh, particularly in light of the pandemic, especially in light of the kind of the Black Lives Matter movement and some of the, the issues within uh, policing. We found that mental health first aid, particularly when applied to communities within the law enforcement community, the first responder community can really make our cities and towns better places to live uh, and better places to run, own businesses and to raise families. So love for Lawrence is, uh, is a serious passion for me. So thanks for asking about it, guys. Yeah, that's such an awesome mission. And I'm sure we all hope that in the future, talking about mental health is not as taboo as it uh, is now, even though it is getting better. So just to leave our uh, audience with some more nuggets of wisdom, what would you say has been the most valuable lesson you've learned so far that wasn't taught in college, say in the time you've had in financial services, your entrepreneurship or consulting, anything that you've learned? The most valuable lesson. That's a really good question. It's a very hard question. I think whether it be financial services and my time in financial services or you know, my time right out of business school, or even my experience at business school, the Love for Lawrence Foundation, uh, my restaurant company, etc. I never realized when I was younger, that, you know, all companies are are groups of people. And, you know, they could be providing a product or a service, or there could be highly technical people, but companies are run by people. And I think the sooner that I realized if, if I could have learned that a little sooner, and truly embrace the fact that, you know, we're just people doing the best job we can. I think that I probably would have been more successful early on in my career. You know, you kind of assume that everyone is going through their day without those struggles or, you know, not, not having the, the, the challenges that people have in their life. And uh, right now what I do, I spend 90% of my time managing people and, you know, trying to help people optimize their, their day to day as well as their career path. Uh, making sure that they're compensated fairly and challenged. And it's oftentimes the little things that you can do for your staff or your coworkers or anyone that you're spending time with professionally that make a lot of difference. So an emphasis on people is pro and an emphasis on how you treat people is probably my biggest takeaway from all of my professional experiences. And I, that will be a lifelong pursuit. I will always be trying to get better at, at managing, but also at, being understanding and making decisions with people in mind and people and my people first uh, and truly being, uh, I think, a good steward of our of our values and my values, my family values and applying them within within that context. A fun question we like to ask all of our guests is about their hot take, a potentially controversial topic. So what is your hot take? <laughs> 
So I've been getting a lot of questions on ghost kitchens lately. In the restaurant industry, everyone wants to you know, talk about and write about ghost kitchens. So my hot take, and I'm not sure if it's right or wrong, but I guess that's the point, is I don't believe that ghost kitchens are a universally applicable concept. I think that there is a lot of investment going into them, but I believe that ghost kitchens require certain fundamentals in a market, both from their concept partners, as well as real estate and just density of, uh, of residential population and office population to be successful. So I'm very curious to see what some of these ghost kitchens are going to become. You know, I'm optimistic in a lot of markets that they're going to provide tremendous value, particularly for the consumer, as you know, you all want your food faster and fresher than you've than ever before. You'll have opportunities to get the snacks and the, the meals that you like. But I do also believe that bricks and mortar and experiential retail, like walking into a restaurant, sitting down at a table, ordering a big soda and some chips and queso or a big cold margarita or something, if you're 21. <laughs> is uh, I, th I think that that's, that's still a consumer preference that people are going to be looking for, particularly as we come out of COVID. So the ghost kitchen enthusiasm is, is interesting. And I'm curious to see what it means for cities like Tampa that don't have the density you know, of the major kind of tier one cities. But for me, I don't think that they are universally, universally necessary and will be universally successful. All right. Well, thank you so much for being with us, Ian. And Ian is from Tampa. So we're so honored to have a champion in our house today. <laughs> talking with us. Um, congrats also to the uh, Tampa Bay Bucks as well. Yeah, hope, hopefully uh, you all uh, you all thought this was somewhat valuable. I really appreciate talking to students. You guys are uh, very lucky still being at the University of Texas. I envy your position quite a bit. So enjoy yourselves and best of luck to the three of y'all. And uh, you've got my contact information if you ever need me. Thanks for tuning in to Business Unraveled, where we share not just the successes, but also the struggles of the business journey. Thank you for your support, and a special thank you to our team, Yai Ding, Sarah Ugangavelli, Nicholas Cao, and Chris Wang for the production of this episode. To stay connected with us, follow our Instagram at Business Unraveled and leave us any comments or suggestions. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.